In two weeks, we start a new series, um, and this is what it's called. It's called Heretic, and that's the picture we use. Um, I don't know if you know what a heretic is. A heretic is somebody who believes something that's off the beaten path. Somebody that believes something that, that you know, is not really orthodox or mainstream or down the center of, of Christian life or orthodoxy, those kinds of words. And so my guess is this. Over time, your beliefs, whether you have been a Christian for a few years or a few decades, or maybe you're still just trying to sort out faith from a distance, my guess is your faith has changed in some ways. You may have something that is a part of your belief system or who you believe God is and how he operates, how God works that that you didn't used to believe. There may even be something that you used to believe years ago that you don't believe anymore at all. And it could be a little thing. It might be a big thing. I don't know. But most of us over the last several years have seen our faith shift in some ways And we might even call it heresy, which is a form of the word, but it's this idea that things shift and change. And we, when those things shift and change, often aren't quite sure what to do with our faith or even what what do we keep? What do we set aside? Is this thing okay to set aside? It's been pretty precious to me over the years. So what do I do now if it seems like it's not as important or maybe I've just decided that's that's not even who God is anymore? So this series, Heretic, it's been cooking for a long time, and I'm pretty excited about it. So uh, we'll dig in, and if you have ever gone through changes or you are friends with somebody who has seen their faith change over time, then this might help you know how to sort all that out, okay? It'd be great. So it kicks off uh, September 18th, right after the park. We'll jump in for a few weeks, and and I hope, hope that you will be ready to engage in all of that. So the parable that we're going to hit on today comes as a result of Peter, the disciple, asking a question from Jesus. And I don't know if, if you're in a place where this parable, specifically this teaching that Jesus gives, will be something that will kind of hit you uh, in, a, in a relationship where it's necessary for you to ponder this thoughtfully. But my guess is you either have been or will be soon in a place where this, this parable is really uh, central to your faith and your relationships. But it starts when Peter just asks a question. Now, we've had some of the parables in this series that have been like that, where it feels like Jesus just sort of lays down this incredible truth as a result of something that just happened in a setting or somebody asked a question like Peter's about to do. And I don't know, I don't think Jesus walked around with a book of parables and went, wait, 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 I have one about that. Let me see, where is it? He just sort of said, you know what, let me just tell you the story. And of course he could, he's, he's God in the flesh. But when he does, he just opens up what feels like sort of the heart of the matter regarding this subject or this deal, this thing. And I can't think of anything more germane in our culture right now than what he taught about when Peter asked his question, okay? So here's Peter's question. And just to set the scene, Jesus has just got done talking about conflict and relationships and when relationships go a little bit south. You know, what, what happens when I have trouble with somebody else or they have trouble with me? And so Jesus had just given some instruction about that, Matthew chapter 18. And then Peter wants to dig a little deeper, okay? And so when he does, this is what Peter says. Then Peter said, Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I, what? So now you know kind of where we're headed. It's all about forgiveness, And again, that may be something that is fresh on your mind, kind of right there, or it may be something you have shoved down deep in denial 
And so, you know, today could be an interesting day for you. How often should I forgive someone who sins against me seven times? Now, Peter was wanting to dig a little bit deeper, but I think he was also wanting to show off a little bit. Uh, The Jewish kind of rule of thumb was three times, so Peter doubled it, and then he added one. And, you know, Peter, I think, was thinking in the moment that anybody who's listening is going to think, oh, my goodness, Peter, you're so spiritual. That's amazing. You're so kind and so generous. And in that moment, of course, Peter runs ahead of his ego just a little, but then his ego comes smashing into the moment, and Jesus has a little chat with him about all of that. Now, I don't know if forgiveness is something that's on your mind, but we've, we've hit the topic of forgiveness, I don't know, about every, I look back on the sermons and the series and such, about every, every year for sure, a couple of years, uh, it's been twice that we've talked about it from a variety of different angles, and we'll, do, we'll keep doing it, we'll keep doing it. And the, and the reason why we will, and why it's a topic, a subject that ought to be touched on often, it, well, the first is this. The first reason is because it is spiritually so important to our walk with God and our relationships with each other. Forgiveness is something that we wrestle with, that we have an issue with often. We we carry a grudge or we feel a little bit entitled to our feelings because of how we were treated or what went down or what's happening in our family. Especially over the last few years, we have you know, large, big convictions and feelings about whole groups of people and then somebody pops up that represents that group and we feel very justified in having some some not very nice feelings about a person or a group of people. And so it's spiritually deeply important. But the, the second reason is because I'd have no idea if you're in a season where you're ready to forgive someone, know you should forgive someone, just forgave someone, or, or have an issue that you're not even ready to want to address or even ponder about when it comes to forgiveness, relational reconciliation, at least you letting go of your grudge or your burden between you and somebody else. But it happens so frequently, and forgiveness and as we'll see in the, in the parable, it, it's really all about timing. And what I mean by that is this. Every now and then somebody says, oh, it sounds like you got an issue with so-and-so. You should let that go. And so you say, you know what? That sounds like the Christian thing to do. I should totally do that. And so before forgiveness is ready to be given, you just decide you're going to do the Christian thing and grant it or give up the grudge or at least say you have and I mean, you got to love everybody, right? I mean, that's what Jesus said to do, so I guess that's what I'm going to do. And forgiveness is born early, premature, if you will, and it's faked completely, and it's not real. It doesn't take root, and it just dies, and you are left with bitterness. You're left with hurt and anger and all kinds of things. Forgiveness isn't a a fruit of the Spirit. You know what the fruit of the Spirit are. It's in Galatians. Paul talks about it. Love, joy, peace, all those things. Forgiveness isn't listed among the fruit of the Spirit. But I believe it is the culmination of at least three or four of the fruit of the Spirit. Like love, patience, kindness. And forgiveness is one of those things that grows like fruit on a tree. And and if you pick it before it's ready, before it's ripe, it's just going to taste awful. 
And if you wait too long or you didn't even know you had a fruit tree out in the yard, you know, the fruit just falls off and rots on the ground. It's just not good. Forgiveness has to be ripe. And it has to be in a place where you're ready, thoughtful, genuine, loving, self-aware. And you give it freely. Not because some preacher told you to. Because you believe God's love is enough for you and also enough for them. That's when forgiveness really matters. And so we'll talk about it frequently because it's really important spiritually. But secondly, it's all about timing. And it could be that what we talk about today is going to help you in three months or it might even help you on Tuesday this week. I don't know. So forgiveness. If, if you're struggling with unforgiveness, you might think, I don't know, I, I think I've forgiven them. Then we'll give it a different uh, flavor. Forgiveness is like a thing that you can turn around and look at it from all kinds of sides and know if you're dealing with unforgiveness. Unforgiveness looks like a lot of things. It can look like resentment. It can look like anger. And not even at the person that you haven't forgiven. Often resentment looks like anger at somebody that it's easy to be angry at. Somebody in another vehicle, somebody at work. Somebody that just sort of, I don't know, pushed one of your buttons and you let it fly. And somebody next to you goes, wow, that was big. You know, that all they did was, you know, some small offense. It looks like anger and bitterness. Often, unforgiveness can look like envy and jealousy. Because you're carrying a burden that is pretty deep and heavy. And you can't believe that somebody else isn't as unhappy as you. Lack of joy. A lack of peace. Some more fruit of the spirit that just can't grow when you're holding or carrying or decided that you're going to bear a grudge unforgivingly. One of the things that shows up in relationships are deficiencies when you're dealing with unforgiveness because you don't want to trust somebody else. You don't want to give your heart to another relationship. You don't want to love freely because, well, you have this fear. You were betrayed before. You were hurt before. You're suspicious, and so in your relationships, you withhold. You stand back. You don't trust. You decide distance is the way to be safe. It's the only way I'm going to protect my own heart. So if you're not sure whether or not you're dealing with any of these things or unforgiveness, one way to ask, one way to kind of dig in or maybe increase your self-awareness a little bit is at dinner or sometime before a dinner, you could ask somebody this question, somebody that knows you really well. Hey, what relationship or, or what person is likely to create a dinner-ruining discussion for us? You can laugh. It is pretty funny. And you could ask this question of somebody who knows you really, really well. Like, if I bring up Bob, is this going to ruin everybody's time tonight? And you know that there's somebody like that in the person's life whom you're close to, maybe, and you don't want to bring it up or somebody else brings it up or this relationship comes up in a setting and everybody kind of braces themselves for what's about to happen, you know, a tirade or maybe shutting down or that you can just feel the tension go up. If that's the case, then you might have a relationship that needs some attention. What person or relationship is likely to create tension in any kind of conversation with you? And when Peter comes to Jesus and he says this, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times, he kind of shoots over the mark. When Peter asks this question of Jesus, Jesus gives him an answer. And this is the answer Jesus gives. 
No, no, not, not seven times, Jesus replied, but what? Answer it with me. And so we're not really sure in the original language, the Greeks had a bit confusing and, and difficult for us to parse, but we're not sure whether Jesus said 70 times seven or 77 times. It's pretty similar in the original language, but here's what we do know. Whether he said one or whether he said the other, he's saying, you know, somewhere between 77 and 490 times. <laughs> that's, that's how much you're supposed to forgive. So if... If you are wanting the headline, okay, look, if you just want the headline today, this is the headline. When you come to the limit of your forgiveness and grace, Jesus says, go a little farther, a little more. That's all. Just a little more. And then you get to a limit. And you found that you have nothing more to give. Jesus says, just go a little bit more, just a little bit more. That's the headline. And you can take that and you could sprinkle it into every relationship you've got and you will find that love covers a multitude of sins, as Paul writes. So then Jesus tells a story. When Jesus tells a story, uh, he tells it, and you're supposed to be aghast at the story. People who heard the first time were. You're supposed to be kind of astounded at it. I can't believe somebody would be like that. And of course, when Jesus tells stories like this, then he has this way of, of telling the story, you see it, and all of a sudden then Jesus holds up a mirror, and we see ourselves in it, and we think, oh, I, I have some things to ponder. So here's the parable he tells in response to Peter's question. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him how much? Millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be what? And sold along with his and his and to pay the debt. So this man has a debt, and it's a debt that he cannot pay. And he comes before the king, and the king doesn't need the money, but the king knows this, that if I let this man off the hook, everybody will know that I'm what? I'm soft, that's right. And I can't do that, I have a reputation to uphold, I can't have people walking around my kingdom willy-nilly just not paying their debts. So I need to bring this man in and settle accounts with him, and so he does. He brings him in and says, you owe me millions of dollars. We're going to pay it. Obviously, look at me. Do you think I can pay that? No, obviously he can't pay that. So now he has lost his life. And all those whom he loves have lost their lives. And all of that has been to satisfy his debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me. I will pay it all. Then... His master was filled with what? Pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. Now, there's so much in these two verses, but there's a couple things I don't want you to miss. The first is this. The man says, come on, please, please, be patient with me. I will what? Is that possible? Is it remotely possible? No, he's lying. Isn't he lying? He knows he can't pay it all. But he wants to make a promise, and he wants to believe that he can satisfy the debt or the anger or 
whatever is missing in this relationship to make it right. But of course, it is ridiculous to even have the audacity to make that claim. But then the master saw him plead, and he was filled with pity. It's really an unfortunate translation in the NLT. It really isn't pity. Pity, pity sounds like, you know, I, I'm from on high, and I see you there, and I'm you know, going to reach a hand down to you. And that's, in fact, exactly what happens, but pity isn't the emotion. The, the, the Greek word is an incredible Greek word. It's a great Greek word. It, it, it really means that he had compassion, and he was moved from his gut, from his stomach. You've had compassion like that, where you feel like, I, I see what I see, and I'm about to just emotionally be overcome with somebody's need, somebody's desire for reconciliation. Something has moved you, and you see it. it it's, Matthew, just uh, about 10 chapters earlier, used the same word when Jesus looked out on the crowd, and Matthew says, that he was moved with compassion because he saw the people and they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus was moved with this same compassion, same exact word. And so this, this king, this master, he sees this man pleading for his life and in a very godlike way, the master, through love and generous compassion, forgives his debt. The king, the master, had really one of two options. He, he, he couldn't really put him on a pay, payment plan, right? He couldn't say, you know, let's just cut your debt in half. I mean, it, it really, that's not even possible. Same circumstance, still can't pay it. His options are, you know, I mean, the debt's the debt. That's just the, that's just the way he's going to go. This is going to get around. I can't really let this man off the hook. The debt is the debt. Or, he could let him off completely. And so when Jesus tells the story, the king released him and forgave his debt utterly and completely. Then, here's what happened immediately. But when the man, when? When, when the man, the man leaves the presence of the king, and of course Jesus is putting all of this in proper context Every statement, every conversation, even the man's physical presence, leaving the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars, and he grabbed him by the what? And demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. And then the man says this, be patient with me, I will pay it. Now, if, if there was any moment where this, this man demanding payment could have been sort of roused from his you know, desire to put his greed on a friend, it would have been that moment because that's exactly what he said word for word in front of the king. Be patient with me. I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. This, this moment that he's experiencing, the demand that he puts on someone else, Jesus wants us to feel uh, the 
unbelievable incongruity that exists in this man's heart. That he could be so forgiven and yet place such a meager demand and bring about this. So here's what happened. Some of the other servants saw this. They were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said this, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. And then Jesus gives us the crux of the parable in one statement. He says this, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? That's for us. That statement is for us. God has this moment of grace and forgiveness with everyone in here that's a follower of Jesus. Everyone listening online is a follower of Jesus. Where God says, I, I, I don't count your sin against you. Now, most of us don't believe that. We don't believe that at all. We say it. We acknowledge it. We say, I hear the spiritual thing, I know what he's saying, I know what the scriptures say. But most of us have this very difficult time with the, the, the free nature of this transaction, that all we have to do is acknowledge who Jesus is and experience his grace and mercy, and we get unmitigated, unconditional love. But this is, in fact, exactly who God is. That's how grace works. That's how his love works. And so the moment you look to him, you feel his love, and it is complete. And most of us take some other relationship that we've been in where we had to earn our way or, uh, you know, be so good or, you know, somehow try to balance the scales of how good we are and how awful we are. We take some of these ideas and we bring them into our relationship with God, and we just have to believe that God at least is a little bit like that. And in this parable, it's almost the exact mirror, same truth as the prodigal son. Jesus is communicating God's unmitigated, unconditional love and mercy. Unlimited. Unlimited. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? This is for us. And my guess is, is if you are struggling with forgiveness with somebody in your life, it could be. This happening in layers, and it's just going to take time. That is most often the case. Uh, you, you can't forgive somebody in a day for something that it took years for them to injure you, hurt you, betray you, or uh, put you in a place of, of terrible, terrible pain. But if you have decided that that is just a place, forgiveness-wise, that you cannot go to, then my guess is, is that God's mercy is limited in your life too. That his unconditional love is something that, well, you wouldn't say out loud that you disagree with it, but as a concept, you have an issue with it. That's not quite the end of the parable, but that's the point of the parable. Then Jesus says this, and this ought to, I don't know, stop you in your tracks and at least make you scratch your head a bit. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be, what? It's not a good feel good. It's not like people went, oh, I'm so glad we heard the rabbi today. 
They, they didn't. They didn't. They, they, they walked away incredibly conflicted, very troubled, very bothered by what Jesus had to say. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt, which is how long? How long is that? How long is that? Forever. Forever. It's a really, really long time. And you can add a couple days to that, right? And then Jesus says this. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. That, that packs a punch, doesn't it? I mean, that's, a, that's a very, very big deal. Now, I, I, won't, I don't say this hardly ever, and I've thought whether I should even say it today or not. Um, but when Jesus says this, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. I think Jesus is trying to find a way to say your ability to freely forgive other people, I cannot overemphasize how important that is. That when you have people in your life who have wronged you, who have hurt you, you should continually come back to that issue and deal with it in your own heart always and forever. And it doesn't mean you can forgive them on Tuesday for the thing they did on Monday, but if you're dealing with it and there's still a name that when it comes up or an issue or an incident and it creates a sense of your desire for vengeance or justice in the life of that person, then you ought to come back and deal with it over and over and over again until you're able to forgive them freely. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I do not think that Jesus is saying that God will, in fact, do this very thing or that you'll end up like this. I don't think that's the case. And the reason I don't think that is because I don't think my salvation is dependent on me being a kind and forgiving person. That's not who God is. I don't think God's sovereign grace and whether or not I am admitted into heaven has anything to do with whether I forgot to forgive or not forgive my third grade teacher for that day, I stood in front of the class and had to face the chalkboard, and everybody laughed at me. I mean, for an example. <laughs> I may still be a little bitter. <laughs> but I do know that I often make God in my own image. And if I believe that God will hold you accountable for your sin, then you know what? I believe God is going to hold me accountable for my sin. And in fact, the punishment that I want to dole out to you because of what you did to me is the punishment that I believe God will dole out to me because of what I did to him. In other words, the love that we receive is the love that we give. Here's another way of saying that. When we forgive, we have decided to be merciful with others and with ourselves. In other words, if I don't believe God can forgive you, then I shouldn't forgive you. And honestly, I don't believe God will even forgive me. It's the only place that that leaves me to be is a place of legalism, a place of judgment a place of expectations that God doesn't even have for us, a place of all of us not clearing the bar when it comes to God's love and unconditional mercy and grace. 
And so I am a very unhappy person then. And I have expectations I've placed on you that I believe are God's expectations for me. And I, in fact, find myself in the same prison that that man found himself in. One of limited love. A love that's based on performance. A love that keeps me entrapped. A love that is not based on freedom and mercy. I like the way Lewis B. Smead says it. He's, if anybody could be an expert on forgiveness, it's this man, Lewis Smeads. He, he writes uh, in his book, the, the Art of Forgiving. Title, if this is your deal, if this is your struggle, you ought to read it. He says it this way. When we forgive, we set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner we set free is us. And so I don't know if you need the grace and mercy of God today in a new way so that you can hand it freely to somebody else. I'm going to ask our servers to make their way back to the room and bring out the elements for communion. But when we understood that this was a communion Sunday and this is the parable that we were touching on, I can't think of a more appropriate way for you to experience God's grace and mercy. And in just a few moments, you'll, if you desire to take communion today, you'll approach one of our dear saints and they'll say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you and it's the blood of Jesus poured out for you. Some words similar to that effect, which in essence say to you, we recognize that you've been made in God's image and that God's love for you is complete. That there's nothing that you can do to spurn it, reject it, set it aside, or live your life in such a way that you find yourself unlovable, unforgivable, or less than. God's love reaches you too. And it doesn't just barely reach you and catch you by just the tips of your fingernails. God's love reaches every part of you and welcomes you in. The love we give is the love that we receive. And so my guess is this, is if you struggle with forgiveness, or there's a, a relationship that you've decided is just done and forgiveness is not even on the table. It's not in the cards at all. And my guess is, is that you struggle with the depth and the nature of God's love for you. And so instead of sending you out on some assignment to go forgive somebody that's hurt you in such an egregious way, let's not do that. Let's save that for a different day. Let's ask God to make his love more apparent to you in the depth of who you are and the way that he loves you. Let's just sit there for a bit and allow God's love to overwhelm you. His love, unconditional, merciful. He sees it all. He knows what you've been through. He knows your name. He was there when it happened. And as unbelievable as that may seem, his promise was that he would never, ever leave you. And so when you come to him and you say, why did this happen? Or where were you? His whisper will be to you. I was right there. And I love you. And I'm with you. What the disciples were going to see is a friend who held up the bread and a meal and said, as he tore it and ripped it, they would see his flesh torn 
hours later. He said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Take, eat, and remember me. And then he would hold up the cup of Passover and it contained the wine of the Passover meal. And Jesus would hold this cup up and he would say, this cup represents the new covenant. This new covenant is based on mercy and love and grace. This new covenant, it would be put in place so that you would always know the depth of God's love for you. So he said, take and drink. Drink from it, all of you. And so whether you're in this room or watching online, whatever is in the way of forgiveness in your relationships, one essence of that is understanding how wide and how high and how deep is the love of God. Take that with you and let God do the rest. So Lord, now in this moment, we come to you as one body, recognizing that your love is all that we need. Lord, there's some among us and some among faith communities and that desperately need to know that your love is more, more than we could ever ask for, dream of, or imagine. So Lord, may you overwhelm us with the depth of this love. Help us to set aside all that drives us to places of legalism or performance or behavior, modification, whatever it is that gets in the way of us understanding your grace. And may we receive it today the way we receive these elements. May we drink it in. May we taste and see that you are good. Lord, we love you and we ask in these moments that your spirit would touch us in places where love is needed most. Lord, uh, meet us here in this place. In the name of Jesus, we all say together, amen. And so at your leisure, you can get up when you like, uh, or you can remain seated, leave communion for another day. But if you would like, the servers are ready to receive you. And you're welcome to take communion right there in their presence in front of them or return to your seats with the elements and take it more privately. But may you experience the goodness of God and understand his love in a deeper way today. Let's take communion together.